Oh, everybody, we are back. Welcome to the VPZD Show. I'm Dr. Zubin Damania, hospitalist and host of the ZDog MD Show, and this is Dr. Vinay Prasad, who is... Uh, Associate professor here at UCSF. Ooh, sexy. <laughs> and this is episode 21, <laughs> episode 21. And we are we now are, a, yeah. of drinking age. We are 21. <laughs> <laughs> which you're you're going to need to drink after this week's news. This is a news show, Vinay, which you keep reminding me it of. It is a news show. And, you know, I was actually just talking to somebody this week um, who is under 21. And uh, somehow in the conversation, there's a few people there. They were talking about going to bars and asking, you know, because of COVID, you still go to a bar. And this person was, had to remind us that they're not allowed to go to a bar. And uh, that was a shock to me. <laughs> that was a shock. Yeah, re wow. Remember that period in your life when you'd go to Las Vegas and you'd pretend to be 21 and you'd sit at a slot machine? And As a brown guy, a all you needed was the driver's license of any Indian man, and you could go anywhere. <laughs> any Indian oh, man, it's close enough. They'll take that's it. That's so true. You could imagine there was just a guy hustling in like heavily, you know, basically any college being like, hey, guys. Fake ID, brown guy, brown guy ID. <laughs> like there'd be 30 like, you know, Indian kids. Hey, I'm going to Vegas this week. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> I don't. I've, now I forget what we were talking about. Oh, so Stanford had a med school commencement. This is the first item of business. Yeah, I saw somebody. Oh. I saw somebody tweeted a couple of pictures of this, and um, uh, you know, obviously, Z Dog, they want to uh, uh, play it safe. So it was outdoors, mandatory booster, and masked. <laughs> <laughs> Now, why are we laughing like school children about this, Vinay? Because, you know, you, you, you safety first. I mean, you want to consider like, well, the vaccines are good and, you know, there's still Omicron. In fact, it's, 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 it's raging throughout the country in a mostly undiagnosed way. And yet the hospitals are mostly empty of COVID, yeah, except for, you know, the residual. Part of it. Um, yeah. I mean, it's stupid virtue signaling, and it also shows something kind of scary that these are supposed to be smart people and they're acting not smart. And here's, here's the crux of it. Here's the, my argument. There are only two rational moments to throw away the mask. Number one, and by mask, I mean a mask that actually works like an N95, okay? The two, right. two rational moments are number one, after you've been vaccinated, and the other moment is never. You have to choose after you're vaccinated or never, because doing this, this game, there's nothing going to be different. You're just going to be older. We're all going to inevitably have breakthrough. It is clear. It was clear by, I think, the early part of 2020, 2022, maybe even the fall of 2021, that everybody who's been vaccinated is going to have breakthrough. It's inevitable. This is so contagious that, you know, it's going to have 93 to 98% penetration. So... And, and the other reason it's really stupid at Stanford is you know that the night before and the night after, they're not going to be doing this bullshit. They're just doing this theater for the production ceremony. The night before, they're all out at dinner at Palo Alto or a nearby town. And the night after, they're all out at the bars. So why are they playing this game? Who are they fooling? Mm -hmm. Come on. You, you, get out of you here. You know what it is? And, and you, again, you'd ask the question, well, what's the harm with the virtue theater? Like, it makes the old people who are there feel better. It makes the liberals in this town, like, feel like they're part of a tribe and I guess all that. Then, but then what's the harm with organized religion that has always exactly, done things exactly. that yeah, make no sense, it, right? Yeah. That is exact. So the whole point is you're you're displaying behavior that's anti-scientific, that is not worthy of the creed of a university where higher learning is supposed to take place, that's antithetical to even common sense, and on top of that actually makes the event 
unpleasant. Like now all these people have to wear masks. You don't see people's faces. Yeah. It, 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 and the whole point is we're opening up. Things are starting to get back to some semblance of normal. And I'm seeing faces even in the Bay Area, which is transformative. Now, here's the best part. I, As you know, as I've complained many times about the Stanford gym's parking policies, which is nothing, <laughs> yeah. uh, their masking policy has been ahead of the curve from day one. The minute the state said, you don't have to wear a mask, they took off the requirement in a gym where people are huffing and puffing at Stanford. And I was ecstatic. I took it off. Most people don't wear it except for some elderly people will wear a high grade mask while they're huffing and puffing, which is fine. It's everybody's own choice. But you can basically be a Stanford student, go to the gym, get breathed on wall to wall Stairmasters and elliptical machines and breathe on each other. But then you can't have your commencement speech at a medical school that's supposed to be teaching science and evidence-based stuff. So if they started the if they started the ceremony by bringing a chicken up there and slaughtering the chicken so that we'll get more rain in the future here in California in our drought, you would say you would say that's pretty stupid. That's a ceremony that's not going to it's not going to bring the rain, you know. <laughs> but then somebody would say, "Well, we're going to have the chicken for dinner, so what's the harm?" You know, and it's similar because they're doing something that's a visual display, but it's not going to do anything of value. It's outdoors anyway. Um, and they're not it's not consistent. It's an inconsistent policy. And you know what it is? You know why I think it bothers me? The real reason is that we continue to capitulate to the dumbest people in institutions. We're capitulating all the time, more and more. Deans and universities, they don't have the backbone to tell their own students, guess what? This speaker this week is a speaker that you might not like. So shut, you know, you don't like it. This is a university. There's always going to be somebody who holds a view that you don't agree with. You got to learn how to talk to these people. That's life, you know? And instead, we coddle the students and we're coddling them in the audience too. I think that's all part of the same thing, that we keep capitulating to these I don't know, whoever it is in that auditorium who really thinks that outdoor masking should be mandatory so that our commencement is safe. Um, you know, whoever thinks that we should not be capitulating to them, they are wrong. It's outdoors anyway. So that's one thing, even on top of all the other things that are problematic. Um, <laughs> we shouldn't capitulate to irrational people. We have to stop, especially at universities. Oh man, I, 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 it, 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 it causes a righteous indignation deep in my chest. Like I, it's like I, I thought these were the shining beacons of knowledge and understanding these university settings, and instead we are. You're giving in to some dipshit, like literally the lowest common denominator. And look, you know, and I'm starting to sound like Ayn Rand or something that like, you know, somehow we have to stand up with individual. It's more just, no, there can be a collective sense of what is correct. What's good science? What's the right way to do this? What's good policy? But instead we, we roll over to people who, again, in this coddling idea with kids, like we've actually instilled in them this idea that they're unsafe. Like they're unsafe to hear words that harm them. They're unsafe um, uh, mentally, physically, to be in situations that challenge them. And instead, what we ought to be doing is kind of some tough love here. It's like, guys, this is the real world. Do you think the real world isn't full of shit that you have to deal with all the time? Like, get on it now. Now, this is the crucible to have real discussions, to have debates in a safe, in a literally physically safe space. Why can't, I mean, the, dean it, of, yeah. why can't the dean of Stanford Medical School say, Listen, there is uh, approximately 1.1% of you asked me for this. First of all, we should be honest about what percent are even asking, right? You know, 0.21% asked me to yep. uh, make it mask mandatory. Um, I just want to let you know that uh, here at Stanford, we are a premier scientific body. The ceremony is actually going to be outside. 
And given that uh, throughout the SARS-CoV-2 pandemic, there have been uh, brrr, uh, zero uh, documented <laughs> cases of uh, outdoor transmission, uh, we feel that requiring masks uh, would be unnecessary and uh, irrational. Uh, meanwhile, brrr, uh, there are zero randomized control trials supporting this strategy. Brrr, and uh, finally, <laughs> the purpose is uh, flawed when you accept the, 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 the reality uh, that breakthrough is inevitable. So delaying breakthrough any further is, is a flawed idea. So, I mean, you know, does it, is it so hard to do that? And I think the answer is it is so hard. They have no, you know, you're picking the dean and they don't have the guts to tell their own staff. This makes no sense. You know, you know what's interesting, and and there's it's a all it's, it's all very cultural too. It's a groupthink culture, and and that goes in all all different parts of the country. But my friend David Fuller, who who hosts the Rebel Wisdom podcast, was on uh, last few days, and he's been staying over here. And he told me coming from the UK to the Bay Area was a culture shock of like an order of magnitude. He said not only were people wearing masks, they were looking at him with a kind of a disdain or a, a fear or a, some kind of like tribal out group uh, stamp for not wearing one because I mean in the UK they're just it's just not hadn't been a mandatory thing for quite a while and uh, he was just shocked he was like you could feel it viscerally that you get like the evil eye from people and he was up in Marin and went through San Francisco when he came down here it had opened up it's it's a little less like that in fact I was at the San Mateo mall yesterday Hillsdale mall and hardly anyone was wearing a mask and Mm. it was packed and I was like, you know, there's hope. I think things are starting to shift. Things are starting. People are starting to see reality. You know, as I was it is in that- I was in um, uh, Texas earlier this year, and uh, if you wore a mask, they look at you like you're crazy. And they look at the you opposite. Act. I mean, we have to acknowledge the fact that the fact that it has gotten to a situation where two different states and political valence would have such different attitudes it tells you it's got nothing to do with science it has everything to do with culture slash political preference slash virtue signal has nothing to do with science if it had anything to do with science then ostensibly metropolitan areas with the same percentage of intelligent people would be doing the same thing but that's not the case you know, and the thing is, they <laughs> the, 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 there there are authorities, scientific figures who will go on Twitter and say, "No, it, it is this." Like, "No, you must do this," uh, and and they make it like it's an absolute. And, and I think we're, I think we're starting to wake up. Though I, I do think I do sense there's a there's a tipping point now. Finally, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, even yeah. talking about this, it feels like a stretch now because things are are tipping. Although boosters were just not just so CDC uh, a chip the uh, what is it um, something committee on immunization Advisory practices committee of immunization practices. that's yeah. that's right for CDC yeah. just gave a recommendation of b- boost should. For f- should. F- should. So five to 11 year olds should get a booster for COVID five to 11 year olds, a booster based on the data on a f- couple hundred kids that says that they're neutralizing antibodies go up. Mm-hmm. Nothing it's about a, outcomes. Nothing. I mean, a, a pretty, pretty stupid decision. But you know, our friend, our pal, Marty Macri had a great dazzling piece in Newsweek about this. Um, oh, basically yes. ripping the CDC apart uh, yet again, as they deserve. Um, because obviously, you know, it, <laughs> whether I mean, 
I think you can debate whether or not it should be a may recommendation, but there ain't nobody who can argue it should be a should recommendation. I think yeah. that's the lane. You know, it, maybe we can debate like, might it be an option if a parent really wants it and a kid really wants? Might it be an option? That's a fair debate. But should can we say should on the just low quality evidence to date? No, you can't say that. That's totally wrong. And the fact that they said that leads one to believe that either they're incompetent or they're victims of groupthink or they're just got political allegiance bias, one of those things. And, you know, Marty kind of probes it, yeah. He does. And do you know, do you know what their rationale was? Was that it's if confusing. we say yeah. it's confusing, if we say may, we're not, you know, doing the paternalistic public health monolithic thing. We need to say should. That way, some people will take that as a may at you least. Know, you know what's so confusing, Z-Dog? We went to that uh, restaurant the other day and there was more than one item on the menu. It's so confused. Oh my God. It's so I was, confusing. I was so confused. Paralysis. <laughs> you know, I, I almost need somebody to come and just pick for me from it, government to just say, here, it get, should take just this. Be, every restaurant should just have one. One item. One item. Let's not make it confusing to people. That's right. It's so so patronizing. And it's also a total, I mean, obviously it's bullshit because there's so many parts of this process just around COVID-19 where, you know, it's, it's there that we acknowledge it can be, for instance, Paxlovid, who should get Paxlovid? Ask your doctor, ask your doctor. It's confusing, right? But so now, but now of course we need a blanket recommendation. And, And not only is it, that point is stupid, but, um, your the point you were making to me before we started was just the reality that what are we at? We're we're at one third of all five to eleven year olds have had even one dose, and now yeah. you're saying that everybody should get three. I was like, good luck with that. <laughs> you got sixty six percent. They want zero. Sixty six percent want zero. What you're gonna do about that? And secondly, ninety plus percent have had the disease at this yeah. point. I mean, what are you even doing? Is your, yeah. I mean, do your brain work over there at CDC? Are you out of your mind? God. <laughs> you know, it, it's not so, my, my kids' school, every day I get these text messages, uh, co- close COVID notification, your child was in contact with a close COVID, and the kids have sniffles all the time. We test them every now and again just to see. It's always negative because those at-home antigen tests are garbage, and I, you know, and and my 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 teenagers like you know still hasn't gotten a booster. My my younger one has gotten the two doses, mm-hmm. and it's like you, th- 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 she she's like, should I get a booster? I'm like, well, do you think you've probably had COVID now? <laughs> I think statistically mm-hmm. the likelihood is yes, and but we're happy to get you one if you want. So she's still kind of deciding. All her friends have gotten a booster. And it's like kind of you know even the kids are like, well, you know, thinking about this, I'm not a hundred percent sure. And it's not like she's scared of needles or anything. She's just like, I just I don't want to waste time. So this even kids I can mean, make these rational decisions if you give them information. All medical products, the burden is that you need to at least believe that it's in your best interest to get it. I mean, and if you don't, I yeah. mean, uh, like you know, why don't I take potassium? You know, I mean, could I could it probably I probably urinated all out. You know, I'd probably be fine. But do it? Does it benefit me? Otherwise, I'm not going to do it. You know? Yeah, um, yeah. It's like that for anything. I got to tell yeah. you about this this cat. Oh, dude! So you have a cat story. I have a, I don't have a cat, but I have a cat story. <laughs> nice. I can't wait. Uh, okay, so you know, I was um, I was reading uh, the paper of record, which is the New York Times, or so I'm told, and um, they had an interesting story. Uh, the picture was vivid. It showed um, three people clad in Tyvek squeezing the the muzzle of what appeared to be a kitty cat as they were shoving a Q-tip down its nose to swab it. Of course. <laughs> 
for COVID-19. The, oh. the caption said, um, a cat being tested for coronavirus in College Station, Texas in February. Sergio Flores for the New York Times. So basically, Z, they're testing so many goddamn cats that somebody could, from the New York Times, had a chance to fly in and take a photo of this. <laughs> <laughs> and then the article... Yeah. The article blew me away. The article is entitled, A New Study is the First to Document Likely Cat-to-Human Virus Transmission, But Risks Are Low Overall, Experts Say. Then why are we doing this? People are far more more likely to give the virus to cats than cats are to give it to people, (laughs) experts stress. (laughs) What what fucking expert said that? First of all, I mean, I, 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 to date, I have not yet seen the study that would lead one to believe that you're more likely to spray it down to the cat than vice versa. I'd love to see the quality of evidence that went into this, but it just sounds like total trash. And then the story goes on. It tells the horrific story of in the fall of last year, a father and son in Bangkok developed COVID. And then it says, quote, they, they, they went on a long ambulance ride to the hospital, quote, for reasons that are unclear, they b- brought their pet cat. <laughs> And then it says, when they went to the hospital, the cat was sent to a veterinary hospital for exam. Quote, although the cat appeared to be healthy, the veterinarian, a 32-year-old woman, collected nasal and rectal swabs, which tested positive for the virus. While the veterinarian was swabbing the cat's nose, the animal sneezed in her face. (laughs) And that's how she thinks she, that's how she thinks she got it. Maybe, maybe the rule is don't swab a cat's nose. Don't swab you, a cat. I, I mean, this this is, by the way, can you imagine? So for each one of my cat's nine lives, there's a possibility of long COVID. <laughs> there's nine, nine, nine long COVIDs, yeah. Nine long COVIDs. Like one of them's brain fog. One of them's like, you know, I didn't I even get. What. I didn't even get to the best part. The best part. Oh my God. The last part of the story talks about how the CDC advises you that when you come down with COVID-19, you are to isolate from people, of course, but also your pets. <laughs> and then somebody had like, I saw some tweet where some guy had COVID and he like locked his cats in the other room. And he's like, it's really hard listening to them paw at the door and meow. They want to be with me. I was like, <laughs> oh, God. That, that is a kind of more, I mean, this is like a moral panic, like some kind of like, like it's almost like the people making these decisions have OCD. Like they just are, they're panicky, anxious lunatics. I mean, there's no I mean, other. How do you reconcile I... this story about, these extreme precautions you need around your pet cat with just reality. You go to any bar in this city, even in this city of uh, germaphobes, it's packed, dude. It's packed. Everything yeah. is blown up now. And then they yeah. want you to distance from your cat. Why would you want it? Why would you distance from your cat, by the way? You're going to get COVID. I suspect eventually the cat will too. <laughs> I mean, what, yeah. what? what is the goal of all this stupidity? Why are you testing the cat? Uh, you know, why do you care if the cat gets it? Uh, uh, why, and why do you think that there's a curbing spread is even a goal anymore and this is in the new york times like they're a parody of themselves they're like the yeah. onion for like rich liberals who live in cities who are covidians and crazy they're they're an yeah. onion for that people it really is it's it's a self-parody now you know what's crazy is they're talking about socially distancing from cats cats are the most emotionally distant <laughs> creatures you'll ever find yeah, like try to do it with the dog I, huh that's why i like them yeah i'm like they're so low maintenance like they don't need anything from me except for food and i'm happy to give that and if they want to give me covid honestly no, no. you're the they're much more likely oh, to get sorry. it from you yes, of course, <laughs> of course. <laughs> experts, yeah, you experts know. stress <laughs> 
Oh my God. You know, it, it really, it really, it, uh, and you know, it's funny, we get all riled up and everything and I'm calling these anxious people lunatics and all that. It's not really fair. I don't want to stigmatize anxiety, which is a real problem, but I do want to stigmatize allowing someone with a, um, a clear bias, which is an anxiety disorder around contagious things around dirt or whatever it is to make policy or to even even be uh, out there as a megaphone without being countered clearly. Like, yes, guys, this is crazy. Pro- I mean, having yeah. anxiety is a real condition that people need compassion and treatment. Guilty, but, yeah. But, um, but, but it's not, the treatment for anxiety is not writing articles for millions of people in the New York Times. I mean, that's not a treatment. In fact, that fuels sort of a broader misinformation and anxiety in the in the broader zeitgeist and culture. I mean, now they've yeah. got everyone, you know, I'm sure that more people will be fearful of their cat after this than before this. Yeah, yeah, I'm already, I mean, I, I'm terrified of my cat. That thing's a fucking demon. Uh, I'm afraid it's gonna you want to claw me. It. Oh, totally, dude. I, and I then bet I'm gonna there get... are actually some people in their house they'll probably try to use the home test kit on their cat, I bet. Oh, oh, you know it's happening. And that cat, you know what's gonna happen? This, okay, this is okay. This is the atrogenic bullshit here. Yeah. You think think tests don't have harm? This what, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you get scratched across the neck, you get Bartonella hensile, you yeah. get cat <laughs> scratch fever, you, you, you liver failure, sepsis and death. And then, and it's like, well, but you know, I wanted to, I wanted to be safe and test the cat. It's but like, you know oh. what? They didn't die of COVID. They died of cat scratch fever. So I just that's right. That yeah. just know that they died with that. COVID. They died with <laughs> COVID, not from COVID. They died of cat scratch fever. Yeah, I mean, this is a real. This is the. This is and this is 2022. 20. Yeah. We've had mass vaccination for a year. And yeah. now they're getting to the cats. I mean, yeah, dude. Did you see the thing in the zoo? I forget which zoo it was, where they were vaccinating zoo animals, and the picture in the article had a had an had a chimpanzee or some kind of ape orangutan or something intubated. They had tubed this ape so they could give it a vaccine. Like, dude. Well, you know, risk risk of intubation. No, I'm sorry. Um, apes should get a booster, not make it a booster. <laughs> They should get a booster, not May. Oh if it was a May God. recommendation, they wouldn't have to tube him, you know. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And this is like Planet of the Apes COVID edition where they're, you know, you're, you're losing apes to, to iatrogenic complications. Which, which animals have vaccines available for them? Are there any species that don't? Oh, we'd have to ask... Uh... We'd have to ask a vet. That's a great segment. Ask a vet with Vinay, Z Dog, and a vet. And then it would be, um, they'd be like, uh, actually, unfortunately, um, amphibians and turtles still don't have. <laughs> we're we're pushing the uh, the 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 vaccine um, drug association uh, administration to really expedite uh, approval for non endothermic organisms. Uh, we, we, you know, the pandemic's not really over. Until geckos, <laughs> lizards, and uh, turtles have a vaccine. Turtles. <laughs> Where do you even give that turtle the injection? I mean, do you give it in the shell vein? Do you give it in a foot? Mm. I, I'm not sure. This is a good question. Um, I once yeah, had a, they have a protection. I, yeah. Yeah, I had a veterinarian on my show. She was talking about actually the levels of burnout in the vet community. Did really? you know? Really? Yes. Really? So apparently, it's high, it's worse than doctors. Yeah. It, that. Um, group is predominantly female. Something like eighty percent female are veterinarians. They are constantly beleaguered by crazy pet owners who demand all kinds of terrible things from them, including like convenience euthanasia and things like that. And um, they and they have to have an incredibly broad fund of knowledge. Um, Do they have epic? 
Oh, they they now are getting EHRs. No, they're not. Yeah, they're getting epic. That's probably why they're burning out. No. (laughs) Oh, dude, that would be the that would be the final straw, dude. You won't even be able to find a vet anymore. But yeah, it was pretty heartbreaking. I was like, this is sad because they go in because they love animals, they want to help uh, animals, and they end up having to deal with fucked up people that are pieces of shit. And uh, and people, you know, people are dicks to their vets. They just feel like this sense of entitlement, or and they're very attached to their animals, of course, which is fine. That's just love. But I mean, man, it's it's ugly. Um, care everywhere maybe some, for a puppy. Hmm, oh my God, dude. My, my, my dog online where you, you can access your dog's oh, uh, veterinary record. Yeah. Oh, right. dude. Oh my God. Um, <laughs> just, you know, just the other day, you know, that this is a new thing that like my chart allows the patient to sort of, the default is they'll read the note if not. And, um, somebody I was, was asking me some questions about what was written there. And I was like, you know, somebody should relay back to the like primary team that, um, they're not writing in a patient-friendly way. They're writing some stuff in yeah. there that's like, uh, yeah, yeah. People you know, need to remember. You need to write your note in a way that anyone who reads it, including the person, feels satisfied and feels like it's accurate. I mean, that's one thing, but feels satisfied. And in my mind, the simplest way to do that is not to use any pre-formatted text and not to copy or paste anything. It's better to get a short note that you actually typed with your fingers than yep. all this garbage. Pre-filled. Yep. Yep. What I do is I just type with my fingers a note without even a template, unless it's an admission because you're not copy and pasting. Two fingers. And two fingers. Two fingers. Yeah, yeah. two fingers. You got to hunt and peck. Yep. You know, when we when we had our clinic, one of our things was the patients could read all the notes. Like they had access to everything. Oh. And, and, and this was, there. yeah, this now was 20, you know, 2013. And what we found was you, you could not write 23 year old drug seeker here to manipulate me. You had to write, you know, clearly something that everyone, like you said, everyone would be satisfied with. Like it has to be clear. And if you wanted to write, if you wanted to do something that like, in other words, like a spouse or somebody called in and said something about the patient that was, the patient did not you know, couldn't, could not hear or something clearly. There was a, something going on. They would leave voice memos and we would have a way to do that with voice memos. But, um, it, the, the, you know, so there were ways to do it in a way that worked, right? Mm-hmm. And and it was very effective. Um, and the other thing is like all the members of the team could write in a note or in a chart at the same time, as opposed to this weird, you know, uh, uh, lack of cohesion because it was a problem-based electronic record. We had, to, we had to, our partners Iora had to build it themselves because uh, you couldn't use anything off the shelf for the care model we were using um, because we're not billing insurance that way. So it wasn't all about like how many clicks to, to bill and and we weren't as concerned about malpractice because we developed relationships with the patients and a good like connection. So we weren't as worried about just cover your ass stuff. So you could write a three word, you know, your three line note if it, that's all the note required. Um, American yeah. medicine. Yeah. I mean, what, yeah. what you know, all these, th- you, you say all these things, they sound so sensible. Just a reminder how broken American medicine is. Yeah, yeah. I know. Common sense is not, you know, yeah. you don't get paid for common sense. Um, so you, you were saying pre-departure, so at least there's some oh, common sense coming back, yeah, pre-departure yeah. testing. Uh, is now gone. So you can come back to the US without getting trapped in Europe or somewhere because that's what has been happening. In fact, my wife has had to cover for people. People have been trapped in Europe when they can't come back because they test positive. Or they lied about their test to get a longer vacation. One or the other. <laughs> one or the other. One of the, but you know, what, exactly. was, what was always weird about this rule is they could have always flown into Canada and drove across the border. I think that's that was, interesting. Yeah. I mean, so that, that's the first point to make is that, you know, 
you know you're pretty stupid if your policy is it only applies to flights and not cars. I mean, let's right. just be, I mean, right, that's internally inconsistent. So right. e- whether or not it works or not, it, it can't work like that. COVID, COVID it, it, it comes in the airplane, but it doesn't come in the passenger vehicle. That's that's pretty stupid. Um, yep. but, that, but that was the policy. The next thing that's stupid about it is that, I mean, you know, uh, the, the test is not perfect. And um, the travel is so great that um, inevitably all variants will spread anywhere, no matter what sort of, uh, you know, walls you constructed for yourself. And proof of that being that all variants have already spread everywhere pretty much every time somebody isolates a new variant. You know, it's already everywhere already. Um, That should give you a clue that you're not going to work. You remember our South Africa travel ban when Omicron happened? Yeah, Yeah, that was effective. Yeah, it was effective at... um, at, uh, at changing people's itinerary. Um, <laughs> yeah, it was a very, very effective exactly. airline company, highly effective at um, making sure the Omicron that was, uh, ma- making sure the South African variant that was already in both countries stayed there. In both countries, yeah, yeah right. Yeah, um, yeah. It's a stupid policy was making the testing companies rich. To be honest, we have to, I mean, really, if I were, if I were looked into it, I suspect you'd find heavy lobbying from those testing companies to keep it because they make oh, money. Of course, of course. I mean, the, 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 the gravy train is going to end soon for COVID, right? I mean, it, it's, it, it's a sign because like my own videos that I make that aren't about COVID get almost no views and all the general engagement drops off, which is a great sign that COVID is wrapping up. I'm like really glad to return to that. And, yeah, and the truth is when masks are taken away in New York, which just happened apparently, right? That, uh, that, to- and- toddler masks. Oh, so, toddler. Oh, God so, so right, New York, New York was, was a, brave, a brave city because nobody had to wear the mask except the except toddlers. For except for toddlers, that's what right. You, what you want to do is you want to look at that COVID risk age gradient and you want to mm-hmm. say, I want to mask the people who are absolutely at the lowest risk of this. And that's how you get them, the two to four-year-olds. Gotcha, yep. buddy. Gotcha. Gotcha. Nailed you, kid. Nailed you, kid. You kid. filthy fomite. Yeah. yeah, no, uh, brilliant. So even yeah. that's gone away, even though Omicron is like, if you look at the number of cases that are even documented, it's quite high, but nobody yeah. cares because it's not, It's we're at that point now well, yeah. where this is, yeah. One of the things they said though, when they take it away, they say, um, we reserve the right to bring it back. Of and I was course. like, of course. You, yeah, I was like, that's course. what happens you when you, that power up. you don't generate credible evidence. I mean, that's the, if they actually ran a cluster randomized trial and was totally negative for toddlers, as I'm pretty confident it would be, then they would never be able to say that because then they would really, like people would know it doesn't work. But living in this, this right. netherworld where they never test it, by the way, Alameda County across, you know, I was just over there uh, like a week ago and um, I walked in a store. Oh, they was, just put it back, the yeah, mandate back. And there was this yeah. person standing in the front and she had a box of, um, you know, some useless um, uh, cloth, some, something like that. Yeah, some polyvinyl cloth slash mask. Looked terrible. Um, and she was <laughs> like, I'm so sorry. You can have one for free. She, she wasn't really policing it. She was just yeah. apologizing it and offering yeah. them. You know, yeah. it was kind of, yeah. she, she looked dejected. At it's least the, the upper part of her face looked dejected. Um, and <laughs> <laughs> she, she looked like she looked like she didn't want to go on in her job. She looked like she was having burnout. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's fucking heartbreaking because mm. anybody on the ground there knows that that is a crazy to ask mandates to come back. Like based on what is our hospitalizations soaring? Are we overwhelming capacity? Like humans need this contact now, period. I'm just going to go on record and say that. Like, you mean they need to see I've, a face. 
Yeah, they need to see a face and they need to get close to each other. And then it's time. It's time. And it, look, if you're at high risk or you're concerned or you're just uh, uh, just anxious about it, you don't have to do that. You know, but I was walking lot- out in front of the hospital the other day and somebody was wearing a baseball hat, uh, tinted glasses and the mask. And they came up to me like, hey, how's it going? You know, and I was like, I was like, how do you expect me to recognize you? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was like, yeah. Yeah, there's not a I, I, no face. There's no face visible. You got the glasses, the hat, the mask. I don't know who you are. And, and Word. Lo, and lo and behold, they only knew me from VPZD. No, just kidding. <laughs> there it is. Yeah, dude, I was I was hiking on my trail the other day and, and uh, somebody went off the trail on a bike. It was a kid. And so I was helping him up off the like cliff here in all this poison oak and helping him up. And then his dad came up afterwards uh, walking his bike sensibly and um, was like, oh, Z-Dog. And like, acted like, like, I should know this guy. And I couldn't, I could not recognize his face at all to save my life. If he's listening right now, he's probably going to email me and be like, dude, it was your friend Jerome. I'm like, I couldn't. So I have facial agnosia to begin with. The guy wasn't even wearing a mask, just a helmet and glasses. And that was enough to confuse me. Imagine like- can confuse. Yeah, I think it's confusing. Yeah, I was, I was perplexed. Um, But a lot of people know you. You're, you're more recognized for your show. I don't know, dude. Not in the Bay Area. It's great. Nobody stops me here. If I the go, if I leave the only, town, I... the only place I'm recognized is the oncology conference, and I'm a little little nervous Ooh, about that. <laughs> tell me about tell me about this. Are they are they mad at you again? I heard some tell of this. Oh yeah. So um, it was so funny. I got um, I got a little bit of pushback, but um, well, one thing you need to know, I guess, like during at, so we had our major conference over the weekend. The American Society of Clinical Oncology was in Chicago, and um. Uh, I, I I didn't attend. You know, I'm a, I'm a I actually I actually had a lot of work to do, so I was working. So <laughs> I, I was I was actually doing the the actual work rather than the talking about it. So I I didn't go to the conference. But also I, I don't know. I I actually I actually anyway. I'm not heartbroken about that. I don't always go to all the con. I go to I have so much travel. I already have to do like a little extra travel. Isn't you know giving that up is fine with me. But instead of going to the conference on my YouTube channel, I put out six of the hardest hitting. Um, videos you'll ever watch. No, they're they're like really they're really <laughs> esoteric journal club style videos. I mean, these are videos you know by us for us oncologists. You know, they really get into the weeds. Um, and uh, and then one person, and then and then obviously one of the videos, what they range. There was one drug that had like a hundred percent response rate. Yeah, in the New York Times. Re- yeah, dostarlimab. Immuno- yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Look at you. You're pretty good. Rectal immunotherapy. I was going to ask you yeah, about it. Yeah, course, yeah, yeah. No, and I, I actually reviewed the data. And you know, I, I was I was very it was the most it was a I was a very optimistic video. People can watch that video. I, I'm very optimistic about that. I think it's pretty cool. Um, and I That's can, great. I'm happy to elaborate, but but I'll get to first. Let me talk about the culture. And then I had one yeah, trial yeah. called Shine, which I just thought was so bad because you know there are these there are these three drugs we use. We normally do two of them together, and then when they stop working, we give you the third. And they did a randomized trial of three of them all at the same time versus two of them. But then when the two stopped working, they never got the third or very seldom got the third. And I was like, dude, it's not even. That's a, not standard of practice. Of course, it's not standard yeah. practice. It's not a relevant question. Of course, you know, if you, if you and I go backpacking for the weekend and we pack breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and on the first day we pig out and eat all the meals, we are going to be more full that evening. But we're going to be pretty damn hungry on day two and three, right? And they're not yeah. even looking at the day two and three. They're just saying, you're more full early. Therefore, we should do it. And I'm like, this doesn't even pass the common sense test, okay? So I had a wow. video on that. And then some people got angry with me, mostly some of the people who were participating in the trial. And I don't know why they're angry. I mean, they're angry, one, because 
I would say the most fragile person in the world is a oncology clinical trialist. I mean, their egos are really delicate. <laughs> if you're not praising them all the time, they take it really to heart. And one person was just like, this is what this is what you'll get a kick out of. They were like, you only make these YouTube videos because you're in it for the clicks. <laughs> <laughs> and then I was like, oh, oh, you really think, you really think, uh, it just shows how, how your brain is where you really think that making a YouTube video about the randomized controlled trial <laughs> called Shine, where ibrutinib and bendamustin rituxin are testing against bendamustin with the primary endpoint of progression-free survival, where I talked about interim analysis and this, you really, th- you really think that's for the clicks? <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> and then I was like. I was like, you, you think I spent like three hours making a video on omitting chemotherapy in stage two colorectal cancer based on circulating tumor cell-free DNA for the clicks? <laughs> <laughs> Ain't nobody want to watch this shit, man. Ain't nobody want to watch this. Are you out of your fucking mind? Nobody wants to watch this shit. Of course nobody wants to watch it. Just look at the views on the channel. Everything that's like general medical interest has a lot of views. These videos have so few views. Of course nobody wants to watch it. The only reason somebody would make it is they're genuinely interested in the topic. Is it so hard to believe? God, I mean, come dude, on. It's so dude, ridiculous. Pe- pe- you know, uh, people people t- say that to me too. You're, you're just a, about the clickbait. And I'm like, well, so that's why I put out a v- the last two yeah, videos meditation. I put out yep. were meditation stuff. And not just meditation, but fucking esoteric meditation. Like I talked to a Tibetan master who's a lucid dreamer who teaches you dream yoga, like meditating in your dreams. And I'm like, okay, there's like three people who are interested in that. And by the way, it's funny. So it gets like, you know, a thousand views. It gets like nothing, but I get these literal physical letters in the mail from people who are like, I had an experience watching that video or whatever it was. And I'm like, okay, so the 10 people who watch it are transformed by it. And more importantly, you're you're genuinely passionate about that topic. I'm interested. I know. That's right. right. That's That's right. Just like you are about the oncology shit. Of course. And and you and I are not, you and I are smart enough to look around and realize if we were truly in it for the clicks, there are many (laughs) other topics we could talk about that would generate many, many more clicks than talking about six randomized or you know six clinical trials presented at asco that's not for the clicks okay that's Dude, a, that's not <laughs> listen i know how we could get clicks because you want to you want to make ad revenue this is how we get clicks okay two real doctors watch yeah korean soap operas i mean like it doesn't even matter we watch that's house all we, have to do. we watch house, we watch house. Yeah. We, and we, we break it down like you talk about the evidence-based medicine i make stupid jokes and we would be we would be legit superstars. To be honest, yet, my, my video about that that kitty cat being swabbed, that's for the clicks. No. <laughs> that's for the clicks. <laughs> that's for I that's agree. for the clicks, not not this I, randomized control draw. Mm, like, right. cat, cato pharyngeal swabs, man. Um the other so, thing so, the other thing that um I mean th- obviously this didn't come across your desk because like the only people who are talking about this are like, you know, fifteen people. Um uh one thing I, I do think I could have done better in my video is uh, drawing a distinction between the people with whom I have the problem, which is the company running the study, and the some of the people... Trialists. Who, well, and, and the major trialists, the ones based in the United States and Europe. Uh, some of the people who are running the trial in countries like Brazil and India, I don't have a problem with those people because they're just trying to, you know, try to get any drug versus no drug. You know, that's not, that's not the root of my discontent. And I think I could have done a better job of really 
you know, focusing my my ire on the company because the company's making, you know, $40 billion from this product over, you know, my company is really the ones who are villains and the people who work in major U.S. cancer centers who don't have a spine. I think they're the problem yeah. here. Uh, I yeah. could have done a better job of that. I'll, I'll do that for the future. But, you know, the but but thinking it's in it for the clicks is mistaken. Um, ah, but you, but, but yeah. see, I mean, see what you just did is you said, oh, you know what? I, here's what here's where I will improve based on what the response I got. That's awesome. That's like recursive improvement on your own communication. Um, I have to do that often because I fuck up all the time and uh, have to be like, ah, you know, I probably should have done it this way. I should, probably shouldn't have said it this way. Um, but so Wait, along those curious- lines, somebody once gave me feedback uh, that uh, you had somebody on your show and you interrupted them too much. Um, and and then I was like, and they're like, won't you admit that that's true? And I was like, absolutely, I admit that's true. But it wasn't about that individual. I just, that's like, a, that's, I'm working on that. Don't you see? You listen to yeah. my, and, and you know, you've been doing a lot longer than me. Interviewing people is not easy. And no. doing it in a way where you keep the conversation moving, but don't come across as you're interrupting them, that is very difficult to do. Um, oh. and, and I don't think I'm the best at it. I watch these like these late night TV show hosts who I used to think were really, you know, they're not that bright. They are actually incredibly bright because to do that the way they're doing it, people don't recognize how much of a talent it is. But you know, you know, it's interesting. So I've thought about this a fair bit. Um, recently, I've been doing these, you know, um, personality score things where you kind of categorize yourself from one to nine different personality types. And one of the personality types that I fall, the main one that I fall into is this number six. It's this Enneagram thing. And I've, t- I've done a video on it. But the, the, the idea is the sixes are always relational. They're always trying to obtain either validation or support from people outside. And so Typically, historically, they make very good talk show hosts because it's always a give and take with them. It's always relational. Whereas a, a type one who is a reformer, like is like, you know, this is right and this is wrong. I care about what's right. I know what I believe. Like when you're interviewing somebody, it'd be a different approach because you're going to interject. You're going to really want clarification. You're going to so on. And so all of those are valid ways to interview people. But I see. but but who, whoever the personality is that's watching is going to interpret it through the lens of their own personality too. Like, oh, I think you're interrupting a lot. It's also going to interpret it through the lens of their own um, ideology. So I've had many people message me over the years, like, wh- you know, when you interview uh, this female guest, I noticed this dynamic. When you interview male guests, I noticed this dynamic. And so I have to go back and watch and go, is this really true? And go, could it be that I have some kind of bias that I, I treat women one way and I treat men one other way? And I look back and I said, no, it's actually very guest dependent. I adapt to whoever the guest is. And sometimes they say you're overly friendly with this type of guest and you're underly friendly with that. I'm like, well, I'm feeding the energy off the actual guest. So, and the goal is to try to open them up, obviously, but if that can't happen, then you just have to roll with who they are. Um, but yeah, it's a huge challenge and it's always a source of improvement. You can look back at old yes. stuff and go, God, that's garbage. And um, of course, like, you know, I'm like, I interrupt more when I have a stronger opinion on the topic, of course, you know, and um, mm. depend no matter who's speaking. And you know what else I want these people to do? All the feedback comes to me. You start emailing these guests, you know, how about you do that? And, and guess what? Here's, here's what you need to tell Here's what you need to tell these guests. You need to tell some of these guests, you know, you're going to go on, you're going to go on a show and talk about it. You got to be, you got to say what you think. You know yeah, how they are. They come on yeah, so guarded. Yeah. Well, I hate actually, it. Uh, you know. Off camera, they're amazing. Uh, yeah, and off then camera. You- and then they come. And then also the other thing, uh, you know, 
so after I had my like my videos, but and my videos are you know there's a range. You know some are critical, some are very positive. Some people were loving. Couple, some, there were a couple of people who said that a few of them like changed their thinking. Some people mm. thought that you know somebody was a little. They're like, oh, I worked on this, and I, you know it's not so easy. You know whatever. There was a range of opinions. Um, and uh, I forgot where I was going with that. Uh, what was I saying a second ago? It's about uh, about you were talking about people who coming on the show and they don't tell you the truth. They don't. They're not themselves. And yeah. then oh you were yes, getting yes, feedback. And yeah. so so now people have like. You know, obviously, when you influence somebody's opinion of an article, they don't want to actually say that you influenced it. But now I see other people have threads like, here's what I liked and didn't like about the study. And ultimately, the critical parts of their thread are basically exactly what I had articulated, you know. Right. They, right. So you're influencing okay. them. Yeah. I think I've influenced them. But they, they start up their thread by like three coats of butter. In I want to start by thanking all the people who did this. They were so amazing and wonderful and worked so hard. And they're really tremendous people. And I love them. And I kiss them. And they're great. And they're the best. And, and and then then it's the feedback sandwich then the middle but some of the limitations are the control arm was borderline delinquent and unethical but but and then the closing <laughs> but you're great you're wonderful you are the best you're 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 the best and you know um and they're saying this to like 50 60 year old men mostly white <laughs> mo- mostly white, white men who are full professors men. and they really they just can't they can't take anything other than you're the best and i think you know as much as people say it's the young kids these days who can't take hearing they're not the best it is also the old people they can't yes. take it either, yeah. yes all of us well you know this gets to the idea of this concept of second self so uh Peter Lindbergh, who runs this um, uh, website called The Stoa, it's kind of a philosophical website. He's kind of talked about culture war stuff, mimetic tribes, all kinds of interesting stuff that I've stolen over the years. And uh, I've been on his show once as well. He's a very smart guy. He has this concept of second self, like this, our first self is our, our work, professional, whatever, who we are. But then who we put out into the you know internet uh, world, into social media, that's our second self. And the second self, often has a lot of failure conditions associated with it that it can get trapped in. And one of them is being afraid, which is what you're seeing there. Like, well, you know, we, we really want to butter these guys up, but then, you know, I, I, I want to actually say what I think, but only in a way that doesn't get me in trouble. And yes, so that kind yes, of second yes, self yes, is a yes. denuded, yes, neutered, yes, yes, yes. horrible second self. And we, and you and I hate that because oh, when we get somebody I can, on I can camera- I feel it, I can feel you it. You feel yeah. it, you feel it energetically. You're like, mm-hmm. this person is, a, is pussing out right now in front of me. And and um, I can't have this because this is not going to be good. This is not this is not authenticity. It's not truth. So, but but you don't. They don't have to be fully who they are offline. The second self does have certain parameters, but the but the failure conditions are are multiple, right? Audience capture is one of them. You start saying what you think the audience wants to hear, and that in itself is a failure condition. Um, internalized capitalism, where you're really thinking about the clicks and the views and what to say to maximize those. So those are kind of traps people can fall into. And then parasocial projection. So this one was interesting. So your audience projects onto you their own shit. And and so they'll see in you what they wanna see or whatever they're projecting. And this is very common because they feel like they know you, but of course you don't know them at all. So when you run into them, you're like, what the fuck is this? And mm. I, I've, I've experienced that many times, um, but it, it is, it's, it's, these are real sort of foibles of putting yourself out online as a second self. But I'll have to find that article and link to it's it because he goes through, there's like six well, different you know, things. And, it makes me yeah. think a few things, but you know, you and I on this show and you and I off this show, uh, the, there, there is a gap, but it's less of a gap than uh, oh, a, yeah. lot of, a lot of our guests. Um, yeah. And the second thing I'd say is uh, 
me in reality and me, you know, at a dinner party, there's a gap. Uh, uh, but uh, as the dinner party winds on, there's less and less of a gap with more time. Um, yeah. But there's always a gap, I think, between what you really think and what you say. There's always a little gap. I mean, it can never be. If it was truly a no gap, then, you know, I think. Uh, yeah, there has, yeah there has to be. There has to be. There has to be. But it's very small. Like you said, when you and I, you and I are not very far off how we are off camera, yes. which is why I think people like to listen because they're, they're listening to a conversation between two friends who are reasonably, one of them is reasonably intelligent. I'm not going to say who. <laughs> <laughs> and one of them is reasonably good looking and they're not going to say who exactly. either. Yeah, we right? also won't say who, right. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, and 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 so you know these are these are important considerations. Okay, so I'm looking at this paper now that, that he has on the second selfing. One, so the parasocial relationships. One of them is actually one of the risks is actually addiction to the very social media that you're participating in. So becoming addicted to using it as a user, and that like anybody can get addicted to it. So that can be a that can be problematic um, because you kind of regress into this uh, addictive supernormal stimulus. But you know, type of thing. I want to ask you about that for just one thought, which is that um, I like I, I, I've always understood when people say they can be addicted to Instagram and Facebook and Twitter, um, but I don't understand how somebody could be, say and tell me if I'm wrong that they're addicted to YouTube, Substack and podcasting just for right. one reason, because like all those are media, the first set of media, there is a very quick and immediate reinforcement from the audience. Yep. And YouTube. Like whenever I make a video, like when I made the video on the thing, people don't realize like first, uh, okay. So one point I want to make, if I make a video about, um, and I did make a video about that cat, I must, <laughs> but not, not because of the clicks, but because I truly thought it was sort of a, it was the absurd. It represent, it re, it's like a, it's an, it's an archetype of things more than it, you know, it's just an example. Right. right. Okay. But I did make a video. How long does it take to make that video? It takes five minutes of thinking and 15 minutes of shooting, 20 minutes, and then you edit it and the pro, and then the process time, you know, I have that shitty computer, so it takes me two hours, you know, an hour to right. do it. To, right. do, to do the journal article, it takes two to three hours of very deep reading, reading the sub, reading a lot, and then another hour of making slides and thinking about it, and then maybe another hour to record it, and then another three to four hours um, to produce it. And, um, and then I can usually put it up in the morning because I go to sleep and let the computer run overnight. Um, and I guess what I want to say is so much time has lapsed. For, for, and then, you, then you post it and then you go do your, you have your life to do. And then like two days later, you come and see what happened to it. And I think there's so much of a gap between the feedback and the doing that it's not the same like using Twitter where it is, you know, you tweet something and immediately you see the reaction. Thoughts? Oh, you're a thousand percent right. I mean, we're talking about super normal stimuli. So what's a super normal stimuli? Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, where, where you're immediately getting this jazz and, and also the endless scrolling and all that just really hooks you. YouTube is, is different, especially as a creator, you may internally have this capitalism, he calls it internal capitalism, where you're you're really looking for those clicks and you're looking, you're constantly refreshing to see, is pe are people liking it? What are the comments, et cetera? But it's really a different pace. Um, that That's why I actually, I prefer YouTube in terms of as a creator, because you put your you you put all the work in up front, you put it up there. If it does well or it doesn't do well, you know the dopamine hit is quick and done, and it's not reinforced constantly. Um, so I, I actually think you know Twitter can be very highly addictive. I mean, you, you look at Jordan Peterson; he's been kind of having this flame out on Twitter, and he, and he keeps saying he's going to leave, and then he keeps coming back. It's kind of like I when I left, I was like, dude, you feel the pull back. You're like, God, you know, at least I can't let someone Let's else talk take about my handle. That. A little update yeah. on that. You that was about what a month ago, maybe a couple. It was probably it was probably a couple two three months ago now. 
But you yeah. haven't said shit on it. You're really quiet. Oh, on on Twitter in general, or yeah, you're not. You 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 said you're out and you're out. I don't see you. Yeah, well, so this is what I do. So it took about a month, and then I realized if I don't go back and take and restart my account, that that name can be taken by a bot. So I said, okay, let me restart it. So I restarted it, yeah. and then I had a bunch of people message me saying, you know what, if you don't fucking post your videos on Twitter you're just, you're being an idiot because at least put them there so people can then see that you've put a video out. Fair. Don't engage, don't do anything else. And I said, okay, so I gave the thing to my team and I said, when we put a new video, here's what I want you to say, just post the video, that's it. And so that's how I've used it. I don't- but, So you, do you yeah. look, do you look? Yeah, so this is the problem. Because of the addictive component of that shit, every now and again, maybe once a week, I'll open up. I don't have the app, but I'll open it up online and I'll see stuff. And you know what though? What's interesting is because I just do it in those aliquots, which is what an addict would say, um, I don't get as sucked into it. I've muted most people that I that bother me, that are really I, emotionally, I know I'm gonna overreact and I'm gonna become, and, and I'm gonna be tempted to do something, but I haven't done anything. I haven't said anything, I haven't uh, done it. So, so far it's been good a few months in. Um, so I'm gonna see if that continues to work, great. If it doesn't, then I'll have to try to kill it again. But no, it's a legit addiction. Yeah, it's a legit addiction. Yeah. I guess I would say that, um, where am I on the spectrum? I guess I would say, you know, it's only an addiction, Zubin, if it bothers you. <laughs> <laughs> If it affects your, if it affects life your day, negative. yeah, isn't that isn't that yeah. the definition? Otherwise, of you're just dependent. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I guess what I would say is that um, why do I use it? I guess I, you know I have definitely had moments at time where I feel addiction, but I'm currently in a moment where I don't, and maybe why is I've set my settings so that unless I follow the other person, I don't see what they say. Uh. So you know, I only follow the people who I follow. And then if they say things that are too crazy, I just unfollow them. And so I don't see anyone else. Um, that's one. And two, I don't know, to be honest, these days, as you say, I'm, you know, 50% of my feed is back to, let me read you my last few tweets, you know, cause this is, will give you a sense of where, I, you know, why no one is interacting. Okay. Or well, you know what? Okay. If a drug company hires a consulting firm to run a cost effectiveness study of their product and they find Surprise, surprise, it's favorable, and they offer first and last authorship to you, the academic KOL. Just say no. Why are you selling yourself for a paper? Okay, so, ah. okay, but, okay, then academic tweet. Next tweet, the tweet before. Comparing results of chimeric antigen receptor T-cell to historical cohorts is not useful. If these comparisons were reliable, we would not run any randomized trials. Turns out they aren't, so we do. It's particularly silly because CAR-T has the strongest implicit inclusion criteria. Do science, not marketing. Nerds. Yeah, and then the yeah. one before that. Uncontrolled studies in smoldering myeloma help drug companies, not people. Think about it. Every drug being tested has already been tested in true myeloma. If it's tolerable there, it's tolerable here. The question is whether there's a survival advantage to early treatment. And so, as you can imagine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 That's, so that's, I'm, that's, I'm not, I'm not going to get addicted to that kind of messaging. That's, that's brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm looking at my tweets now. Let me see. I pulled them up. Yeah, so let's see. I did one today to drop the, we, we dropped our video, uh, letting <laughs> attention drop out of thought and into 
to the senses can be a powerful practice, one that's always available right here and right now. And I shared the video, your senses are gates to awakening. And then um, I retweeted actually, because I, I heard, yes. yeah, because Peter Peter's people told me they were tweeting about it. And so I dug it up and said, oh, I'm gonna retweet this because it was funny. It was me and Marty talking about how going on Peter's show is like taking the board exams. Cause he's like, well, 20 levels deeper here. Uh, could you outline the 20? And you're just like, Jesus H. Mar Marty himself has panic attacks when he goes. And first goes of all, the, the screenshot I see is just a very zoomed in picture of Marty. <laughs> <laughs> Which is perfect. I'd retweet that any day because he's so damn handsome. Marty, yeah. Love yeah. Marty. Yeah. And, no, uh, you see, you're not getting into I mean, I think the only, I don't know. You're right. Nobody cares about COVID. I mean, COVID, fewer and fewer people care. And so that's kind of chillaxing the whole thing. You yeah. know, if you, if you recall, which I know you don't want to, but if you recall the the entire brouhaha that led to you and this whole oh, thing. Oh, yes. Was, I love this stuff. Was a spat between between you and the California Academy of Science, and the dispute was the vaccination policy to visit, and the dispute was whether or not an adolescent required a booster or merely could have two vaccines and test negative, to which they said it was the latter, which was yep. very clear on their website. And if one actually stands back where I'm standing right now, I guess the more time elapses, the more I would say that the whole thing is pretty fucking stupid because they should yeah. just let any kid in, vaccinated yeah. or not, and they should yeah. shut the fuck up and just let them in because it's a science museum, a public science museum, not... Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, the thing was with that tweet, it was never, I was never in question as to whether I was correct. <laughs> I was always like, you know, I'm, I'm right. And I, it's just, should I even be here in this playpen throwing feces and having people throw feces at, at and back and forth between a museum when I could just make a more nuanced video? So it just, it felt like ah, Twitter was not, I don't know how to do Twitter right. And it was all about, it really was all about me. It was all about like my inability to wrap my emotional body around Twitter without fucking it up. And so that's why I was like, I need to get off this and also set an example for people who also are likewise unable to do that. Um, and I think, I, you know, in a way it's kind of like a rehab. You come back and you're like, I'm looking at my tweets now going, you know what? This is this is good. I'm just tweeting about when I go live on a video or I'm putting a video out and that's that's what I'm good at with Twitter is letting people know I made a video. Otherwise, I'm just, I don't have the the mind for Twitter or the temperament for it myself. Let me, let me tell you about hey. feedback in general. You know, ah. recently I was on service and I was working with the star. And I say star because like, I don't know, I had worked with this person a year ago when this person was just starting out as a, as a, you know, a fellow. And then I worked with this person a year later and I was like, you know, a lot happens in a year. You learn a lot. In the beginning, I felt like I could teach this person things. And now by the end of it, I was like, I don't know. I was like, I don't know why they need me here because this person knows everything, you know? I was like, uh, so you know, awesome. So awesome. Yeah. Like both at the knowledge and at the getting things done part. And so I was like, huh. And then I don't know, this person was asking me like, you know, you got some feedback for me. Do you have any feedback for me? Do you have feedback for me? And I was like, I don't know. No, I mean, I don't know. What can I, I was like, you know, and then it made me reflect on like feedback in general. And I have a few thoughts. One, you know, 25 years ago, we weren't that into feedback. Nobody, nobody was given it. Nobody wanted it. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I think I, I, I have only the vaguest idea of how I was doing in like elementary and middle school until I got my final grade. I had very vague idea um, and certainly didn't have anyone sit me down and tell me what they thought. And I know people believe that it's a good thing in our culture that we're always giving feedback to each other all the time. 360 degree feedback is like in organizations. But I do worry that maybe one of the reasons people are so burned out is that it's too much feedback. I was 
was like, mm-hmm. you know, I was like, to be honest with you, nobody wants feedback from someone they don't respect. And as much as I wish everyone I ever worked with, you know, really thought that I was brilliant, maybe that's not true. So I, you know, I don't give people feedback. The next thing is, you know, to give somebody feedback, I guess one, I have to be like confident enough that I'm able to do it, judge them and able to tell them something that actually would make them better. And how do I know? You know, I mean, uh, I'm not trained in that. And there's no high quality evidence that that's true. And so, I don't know. I didn't really have much feedback for this person. Uh, I, 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 I felt like I was letting him down by not giving him feedback. But the feedback was, you're good. You're good. That's it. I don't know. Is there anything else to say? Man, this is something I've struggled with myself because when I was when I was running my team at our clinic, you know, they were mostly millennials and they were asking for feedback like all the time. In fact, they would schedule in weekly feedback sessions and I was just like, "Ah, you believe me, you would hear from me if things weren't going well." Yeah. And but 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 you know what it is? It's a, it's a kind of a mutual insecurity. I'm insecure, you know, maybe opening up and giving them honest full 360 feedback because I just don't see it as being productive to say some of the subtleties, but they're insecure because they don't know what I'm thinking and whether they're doing a good job. And also they wanna know that I care enough about them that they're getting, that I'm, I'm putting the effort into it. So it was nuanced and complicated. And I've just, I've gotten, I don't know that I've gotten better at it. I don't think I have. I, 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 I don't know. You'd have to ask people. <laughs> I mean, again, and it depends on who it is. There's some people who just, it, it's just assumed that you're not gonna be talking about that. And then there's others who are like, no, I need constant, evaluation. And uh, I have mixed feelings. Sometimes I'm just like, you know, it's not about that. It's even hard to articulate because I'm still trying to figure it out. So I I share your ambivalence. You're, you're, yeah, yeah. Well, maybe yeah. I'm, I'm. You're more ambivalent than me because I, I, I I'm, I'm anti. I'm anti feedback. <laughs> I think it's too much. Everyone wants too yeah. much feedback, and I think we'd all be better off if everyone kept more of their uh, feedback to themselves. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and I do, I do worry that it's a, it's a strange culture. Part of this whole culture of. You know, just the same reason why the trialist couldn't hear that their trial was bad until they heard five tweets praising them. There's something about it. I think. I don't know. I worry that part of what feedback means is that people just want to be praised. And I think, yeah. you know. Oh, yeah. See, oh, of course, unconsciously, I want feedback because I want him to at least say or her to say at least one nice thing About that you. makes me feel good. And look, I mean, ah, my, my feeling is a little bit this way. If your relationship on a team is actually uh, healthy in general, I'm not sure. Feedback almost feels like a patch for people who, you know, aren't able to, communicate like normal human beings on a daily basis. I, I don't know. I mean, again, I could, because again, like you said, you're anti-feedback. I'm more ambivalent because I, I see what it's trying to do. I would I rather see. just improve the relationship. Um, you know, for example, now this is a good segue oh, yeah. into into voter feedback in San Francisco. Oh, I see. They gave so, some feedback. Yeah, so politicians, the way they get feedback is they're supposed to hear from their constituents on a regular basis and so on, but or they get recalled. Uh, or they get booted out of office. And San Francisco gave feedback to, 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 to the world when Trump was elected by electing a DA, this guy who's the son of like, I think these like kind of left-wing 
revolutionaries who were arrested and spent time in jail and so on. And he was a public defender, not a prosecutor. And they elected him as a DA because he was saying, we're gonna totally transform how we do criminal stuff. We're gonna, we're gonna lessen, uh, focus on these sort of minor crimes and uh, focus on the big stuff. And, you know, basically, and so they, they elect the guy, he goes in and basically <laughs> was interpreted by the population as decriminalizing crime more or less. The city during the pandemic has so much sort of uh, shoplifting, car break-ins, just bold kind of grab and run kind of stuff. It just felt lawless to the citizens. Um, even though violent crime you know, did not rise and in fact went down and so on, these sort of petty crimes went through the roof, including drug use in the streets, like needle exchange stuff where like people were just strung out on the streets, um, things like that. And the population said they'd have an they had enough and they recalled him in this last election cycle. And there was an article written in the Atlantic about this and basically said, look, there was, that was one thing is like people were like, this is great uh, ideology in practice. It's not working. We don't feel safe. And it was often minorities that were saying this. Um, so the people that he's you know purporting to protect with the ideology were the ones that were coming back and saying, no, no, we need to feel safe in our communities. And in fact, if you ask, like, you know, they were, they, they, she cited some um, uh, statistics in the report saying, you know, if you ask minorities, like what they care about, racism is not the top of their list. It's safety, economics, et cetera, um, which may all be manifestations of structural racism. Sure, that's fine. But those are the top things on their list. And so they voted this guy out and they booted one of the, uh, earlier in the year, booted one of the school board people who was so focused on Changing race- names. Changing names uh, what, of schools. Changing names of schools. <laughs> yeah. Lincoln Elementary and Feinstein to, to what, you know, something woke instead of opening schools, which wasn't an interest of this person's. And she, what was funny is, she, they, what, they did, what did Lincoln do that was bad? Remind me. I thought he. I don't know. You freed the he did, slaves. I thought apparently, he did something good. No. Apparently, if you're secretly racist, so much so that you're projecting woke ideology on everyone else, that Lincoln's freeing of the slaves was actually a bad thing. So, I mean, that's all I can imagine. I guess Lincoln. No, no, no. Sorry, he, he, I'm so wrong. You know what? Else? You know what he did? What? He was born white. And no, male. that's not. Yeah, it. no, seriously, nah, no, that's that's. He must it. have done something that I yeah. mean, maybe something. I, well, anyway, he grew a beard, which meant he had testosterone, <laughs> which meant he was male. Um, I thought some I'm people sorry, actually I, worried no, that I he didn't had. Mean to say that women thought, can have testosterone. I thought some people thought that he had some genetic abnormality because of his height and stature. Marfans, Marfans. That, is that what it was? Yeah, was that was the theory. Else, yeah, anyway. so so he's intersectional. He's a, he's disabled or he's um, differently abled in an intersectional way. So we should, you know, oh, was, here was the funniest part of that article. She was saying that um, there was a school board member who did not get elected because of the pushback from this other board member because he was only a gay male who was white who had uh, multiracial children. That wasn't enough. There wasn't yeah. enough intersectionality. You needed to at least what? be a woman of color who was also gay. And seriously, this was San, this is San Francisco internal politics. And so finally people had had enough. And you know who had the most of this woman, the school board person? This I forget what her race was, but it wasn't Asian, all right? And it wasn't white. It was the Asian community. Yeah, yeah, because I remember they, the school. They, because, and they also took this, low, this, this school that was always to get into the school they picked like the kids who had performed the best and they turned it into a lottery which kind of took away a, a path of opportunity for many many kids in this town but that's i would right. say and, you know, yeah yeah i just yeah. want to say about most, the, this mostly asian issue. kids actually yeah, yeah. Mo right because yeah. they were the ones crushing yeah. on those tests and stuff yeah um, exactly right i mean I, 
I, I guess you'll have to tell me more about how do you actually solve the problem and the nitty gritty. And as a policy person, you know, um, I, I want to look into it a little bit more. But I will say, as somebody who spends a fair bit of time in the city, particularly around all of the hospitals, it's a terrible experience. I mean, yeah, it's terrible, especially at the hospital I spend the most time at, because the number of people sleeping on the streets is massive. The amount of feces that you step over, dogs and or human, is massive. Uh, the amount of drug paraphernalia you stumble over, the amount of trash in the street. Um, and then if you have the misfortune, as I did recently, of having to be downtown, uh, it's 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 like a blighted hellscape. And yeah, it's it shocking is. because it's like the most beautiful weather city. Um, in the you know, pl- on the planet, the planet. Yeah. yeah. yeah, And the trees are gorgeous and there are parts of the city, the parks are go- gorgeous. But everywhere you go, even in the gorgeous parks, there are people sleeping under trees and uh, needles everywhere and all this. I mean, and I'm not even exa- I mean, I've literally stepped over more syringes than I've ever stepped over in my life. Um, and, uh, you know, and I guess, uh, you know, oh, and then you go to some of these um, pharmacies, pharmacy stores and every single thing is behind lock and key. Yeah. Every single item. Yeah. And the toothpaste is deodorant, behind lock and key. Deodorant behind lock yeah. and key. Yeah. Because people will just come in and take it. And so the question is, God. is that this is an epiphenomenon, yeah. clearly a failed policies. It's a it, failed, it's not, yeah, total failure. It's, a fa- it's failed Nobody policies. Yeah. So what do you do? Do you double down on the policies that failed or do you start to try different policies? So in New York, when crime was surging, they changed policies. They said, okay, well, we're gonna get this guy and he's gonna do something different. And whether that's all New York's policy or whether it's a broader policy shift in the country, you don't know. But 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 you know you're not you're not seeing the same decay in cities that have different policies. So in, you know, and there's a lot of variables that go into it. So right. I think I mean, what people so that's what yeah. I keep coming to. Like as a methodologist, I'm like, well, how would I prove to myself it's the policy versus? I mean, some of the other I mean confounders would be you know people know that San Francisco is like this. So if you had a homeless population in Reno, Nevada, you put them on a bus to SF. You know, make that's right. You know, right. So I think people yeah. will punish and that's that. Happened. That's happened because the other thing is that it may draw homeless people because we have offer more services like right right for every person you see on the street who is in fact homeless there are lots of people who are um, you know maybe have their stuff a little bit more together and actually taking advantage of some of the programs like getting into housing and stuff and so maybe there's some success stories you don't see because they're not on the street anymore right Um, right and that may be a draw. and how much of it is is the fact that like you can legally shoplift? Is that you know is that a problem? But I mean, you're right. I mean, I guess so. I, I that's that's the part that I put the now, pause in. Ah, yeah. No, what you're pointing at is key because th- this is why it's not a black and white. Like you can go to Fox News, they're going to tell you San Francisco's a hellscape. You, you go to CNN, I don't know what they'll tell you, but but it's all going to be useless because yeah. the truth is, like you said, quite complicated. Um, and, well, you know, I guess I, I guess I'll, I'll concede this- it. Like it 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 is a hellscape. Nobody likes to live in this situation. Nobody likes to walk four blocks to the hospital from the restaurant and you step over 25 needles and three people passed out in the street. But exactly what was the cause of that situation and how to fix it, I don't exactly know. But I do think that if you are in office and you come across as soft on all this stuff, like it's no big deal. uh, You know, like I think that's the sort of attitude. Right. It's not good for you. It's going to set a precedent. Well, so and one of the other interesting things that they talked about was this nimbyism, this not in my backyard thing that happens in San Francisco. So previous. That's why you live south of town. 
<laughs> exactly. I'm like, no needles in my backyard. You're like, bitch. not in my um, backyard. You're like, I'm moving to Peninsula. Not in my backyard. You can put a nuclear facility here. I'd be happy with it, but no needles, please. Now, but like, but but the, the idea that if pre-existing homeowners can hold up new development for years, for a decade, if if the new development like puts a one percent shadow on their pop- property. So what's happened is it's created a housing crisis. You you can't build housing. You can't uh, lower housing costs. Then you have all the tech bros coming in from the Silicon Valley stuff. And so it's a multifactorial. So teasing it out is hard. But but like you said, as a policymaker, you can't go in with a with an ideology that's going to that's that is each, even going to be perceived as making it worse. Um, because, and then, you yeah. know, and um, I guess and with all these real problems going on, when someone says they're changing the name of a school that's named after Abraham Lincoln. And like, that's their priority. Like, that's what they're spending their mental energy yeah. on. Yeah. I totally understand why you'd want to kick them the hell out of office because they're proving uh-huh. that they are failing because they're not even talking about the thing that you want them to work on. The name, at the end of the day, even 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 names, of, you know, whatever. The name doesn't matter as much as what the service they're providing, I think. Right, right. Well, you know what's funny? So that the woman on the board who got booted off, who was, mm, you know, yes. doing these policies, she was booted off by 67% of the Asian vote. And the reason was they dug up some of her tweets from like a couple of years prior to her being on the board. And she was basically coming after Asians saying, "You got, I'm tired of this model minority bullshit. You people are basically house N-words and, you know, this and this and the other thing. And I'm like, wow, so you've actually put someone in office who is overtly racist, um, you know, has has a polity, identity politics that come off not as shared humanity politics, but as pure identity politics, like saying, oh, you're not intersectional enough. You're only a gay white male with with multiracial kids. Like, that's not enough. Like these kind of litmus tests for like what's acceptable. That's insane. Um, and, and the voters booted her out. And the same voters that she was attacking, actually, which is ironic. Yeah, I don't get these politicians, you know, like, yeah, I don't know. why can't you just go in and be like, I don't know. <laughs> why can't the answer be like, nobody likes stepping over feces and needles and uh, yeah, we're gonna, let's clean it up. We're going to clean it up. First, we, we will try both. We're willing to try both compassionate things and then we're willing to try harsh things. We're willing to try things and we'll see what actually works and, uh, you know, et cetera. And then I saw there's a really nice, like, long article about, like, an immigrant family that was living in the Tenderloin, which is like the worst of the worst area. And, you know, they're just trying to make ends meet and get through the day. And, you know, and it's like so difficult, you know, young kids walking over all this, uh, you know, passed out people in the streets. And, um, and, and, and then you couple that with all these posters that have gone viral, which are like advising people to, you know, the, those use safely posters. You see these? Right. Yeah. It's like some poster that was like, you know, when you use IV fentanyl, make sure you start slow and do it with a friend. And <laughs> oh, I mean, and, and both yeah. New York city and San Francisco has harm kind of reduction, harm yeah. reduction. And I was like, yeah. by the way, by the way, when did, I was like, I thought harm, harm. Yeah. I'm into harm reduction. I remember yeah. when we were saying that about COVID, but you all were into like draconian where you're in 95 mask outside. Yeah. So and now you're, you're okay in, now, yeah, now you're in harm reduction for like the fentanyl use. Right. Um, and also like, isn't isn't the problem with the fentanyl that most of it is like contaminated with things yeah. you don't know what it, is the really the answer to start low and go slow or or might there be a different I, I mean I would just assume right. that there well, might be a different answer I'm the, not an expert in this article it was a lot of parents who were advocating who have kids who either were, were on the street using drugs and they were saying you know we actually want some tough 
some tough reaction here. We, you know, he sobers up when he's in jail, like different things, but we don't know. We don't know what the answer is. Like is harm reduction having safe needle exchange stuff? Is it giving them a place to shoot up? Well, you know, so far it doesn't look like it's doing good things in the city, but maybe we're not miss seeing the big picture. Maybe the overall area under the curve of deaths is lower, but the, but the optics is bad. Like you're seeing people on the street and the, the feces everywhere and all that. Um, I guess so if, you really, really, if you put me in charge of this problem, I guess my first problem with this is that, I mean, like just as somebody who just studies the methods is how would you, like you need to do it in a way you can evaluate if it's successful or failure, you know? Right. And I, I guess people come in with their ideology and then they implement things in a way that you'd have no idea if it's working or not working. And so I would, first thing I would do is I would spend a lot of time thinking about how I could implement different ideas, not just those ideas, but maybe other ideas in a way that I have actually some sense of whether or not it actually helps or not. Um, mm -hmm. And it might require some partnership among cities or whatever. But anyway, I'm long yeah. story short, nobody likes this. I mean, nobody likes the idea that when you walk around and it's a cesspool, uh, that uh, the person who's supposed to be cleaning it up is uh, not doing anything about it. I think not that's, doing it. Not, yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. Word. Dude, I think we did a thing, brother. Oh, did we cover Episode all our topics? 21. Yeah. I, I'm trying to look here and see if there's anything we missed. I think we hit every single You have to go thing. to the bathroom is what you're not telling me. Right? No. <laughs> Actually, if you, hey, if you have another topic, I'm good to go, bro. Let me think. Let me think. Yeah. Let me think. What did we yeah. talk about? Well, I mean. Because um, we talked about Stanford Med School commencement, boosters, the cat how, story. How I, how, the reason I did um, cover the randomized control trial shine was for the clicks. <laughs> <laughs> and then how how they swab, they swabbed that cat, made sure it didn't have COVID. You know what? You, you will get COVID, Z-Dog. You will get it. But you won't get it from that cat. I want <laughs> that's right. Thank God. Thank God. I don't want cat COVID. Now that's feline. That's like you know when they remember they were. I, I think there was a moral panic around HIV and cats. No, there is. There's, some there point. is a female a feline immunodeficiency virus. That's or right. FIV. Fids. Yeah, or FIV, 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 FIV. Oh, you know, I wanted I wanted to ask you, the 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 rectal cancer drug trial, 100% oh, yes. success. So tell me a little about that. It's immunotherapy. Educate me. Okay, so... Um, <clears throat> I guess I would say, oh, I guess the, my first thought is trying to think of how much background you want to know. I guess I would say that um, uh, these immunotherapy drugs came out maybe in 20, uh, 2011 was the first, and then we had sort of phase one results of the of this new class, PD-1, PDL one in 2012. And they have been blockbusters in the sense that um, there are many different cancers that have a fraction of people who benefit from these drugs. Um, we still don't know exactly who will benefit just from looking at them or anything, you know, but we have uh, some tumors benefit more than others. Melanoma benefits more than prostate um, and, uh, and some particular mutations benefit more. There's a certain type of mutation called microsatellite instability high. It goes 50% uh, of the time or maybe 40 to 50% of the time. It happens for people who have the Lynch syndrome, that HNPCC um, genetic mm. syndrome, but it can also happen yeah. sporadic. You can have an MSI high tumor and it was always a unique kind of tumor. Often the people who get it are a little bit younger than the average person um, and they just have tons of mutations and tons of sort of neoepitopes on the surface of the cell because there's just tons of sort of genomic instability in that tumor type, in that tumor. Mm. And we knew that um, for rectal and colon cancer, that's MSI high, this drug worked, you know, pretty well. Maybe 40, 50% of people would have tumor shrinkage. Um, there were some stories of long-term survival. It didn't, it wasn't 100%, but it worked pretty well. Um, okay. This is very interesting because they took patients with stage two and three rectal cancer. So that's rectal cancer before it has spread. 
And the treatment for these rectal cancer patients is something that nobody likes. It's chemotherapy, radiation therapy, and then surgery. And you really tend to do all three. So yeah. it's like painful chemo radiation, and then they cut out a lot of the rectum, and then they hopefully can re-anastomose you, but maybe not always. You might end up with a colostomy. You know, it, it's not it's not a pleasant thing to go through. The radiation yeah. is unpleasant, the chemo is unpleasant, the surgery is unpleasant, none of it is pleasant. And of those people with rectal cancer, five to 10% of them have MSI high. So it's a minority, but you know, it's an important minority, it's a minority. Um, and this study took 12 of those people who if it weren't for this study, they were going to get chemo, radiation, and then get it cut out. And they gave them dostarlamab, which is like a Me Too, Coke, Pepsi kind of version of this drug. Um, and they had their protocol was like, if the tumor goes away, we'll just watch you. But if the tumor's still there, you got to do the chemo radiation surgery anyway. And what they found was that in 12 of 12, the tumor went away by every single metric. And they're watching them, and not a single person has had the tumor come back. And, you know, a few people are out past a year. And so... I guess it's impressive. Like, so the reason wow. it's impressive is every single person has so far not required that stuff you don't want, chemo, radiation, and surgery. Yeah, that's remarkable. Yeah. But, but now, yeah. now this is an example of really personalized medicine because you're looking at the tumor type very granularly and saying, okay, it, res it may respond to this. Yes, I think you're right. Like it actually is based on these molecular characteristics. And then the other thing I'd say is it might even be an example of an almost parachute-like effect. Like if you didn't give them this drug, there is a near 100% chance they're going to get chemotherapy, radiation therapy, and surgery. Now, once they do that, they have a 75% chance, I think, of long-term survival, but they have a 100% chance of going through something unpleasant. By giving them this drug, you have reduced that chance so far to 0%. So it's really like a light switch kind of thing. And um, in my little yeah. video on this, I propose a new study design. I'm, I'm a little proud of this, so I'm going to tell you about it. Um, and yes. we're, we're actually trying to write it up. But basically, the idea is this. Like, now that you have these results, what's the next study you would do? And I'm the kind of person who normally wants randomized control trials. But in this moment, I will acknowledge that it's really to avoid those things is really pretty good. So here's how I would do this study. I would basically run a study where... Um, you get randomized to this dostarlimab or nivolumab or pembrolizumab, one of these new drugs. And as long as it's still 100% in every arm, we're just going to keep giving you the drug and not give the chemo radiation. But the moment it's not 100%, if it goes to 95% or 90%, there'll be some percent where there's a trigger that if you have relapse in 10%, we trigger randomized control trial. So that mm. way that if it's truly as good as they say it is, that we're never going to get there. But if it is not as good as they say it is, we are guaranteed to get the right study. And I think, you know, it, I don't know what the answer is. So like 12 is small number. So maybe it, it, maybe this will hold up, but maybe with larger sample size, it will go, it will not. Um, but I like my study, which oh, I Oh, that's call, great. Yeah. What do you call it? I call it the, um, the, uh, the, uh, the, like the, uh, is it still a parachute trial? As long ah. as it's still, as long as it's still a parachute, you don't have to randomize. But the moment it's not a parachute, you're going to start to randomize. And when, and just to tell people, remind them when we say parachute, meaning you don't randomize control trial a parachute. You just kind of know it works based on observation. It, it, it's kind of like what the ivermectin people were saying about ivermectin, but they were brutally wrong about. I guess the um, difference is that if you got ivermectin, you didn't have a hundred percent chance of survival, and if you didn't get it, you didn't have a hundred percent chance of death. 
have. You know, that's right. so, so that's right. it was it was probably pretty close to eight percent, eight percent whether or not you got it. So <laughs> that's right. So that's right. Not really the parachute. But that's yeah. right. That's right. So you could you could look at it this way. You could say, okay, yeah, right, exactly. This particular sequence of twelve patients, it was almost like a parachute. You threw the thing on and it worked every time in the sequence that you had. Now maybe right. more more numbers. So you're saying keep going, keep going. When you start to get a certain fail rate, that yes. will trigger then yes. you do the randomized. Yes. Yeah. That's a great that's huh? a great that's huh? a great option. Huh? Yeah. Huh? Huh? You know what? You may have a future in cancer. Yeah. Okay. You know, uh, I don't well, know. Well the way you know, I'm gonna we're gonna list you as a suggested peer reviewer when we <laughs> <laughs> Oh my God, I'll do a video about it. Well, guys, here's a public peer review of an unreleased manuscript. Um, <laughs> yeah, so, so here's a question. So how does this Dolstarlumab actually work? What's the proposed mechanism here? Well, I'm glad you asked. Um, <laughs> one, of, one of the ways in which cancer survives in the cell is immune evasion. Now, cancer has many properties that give it a, a, a favorable advantage over your normal cells. Um, and those properties include getting blood vessels to grow to it, um, uh, having a proliferative advantage, maybe even a metabolic advantage and taking advantage of nutrient pathways. But one of the things cancer does is it evades the immune system because to some degree we all have some, I'm sure, precancerous cells that our immune system mops up. One of the mechanisms of immune evasion is expression of a T-cell inhibitory molecule on the surface of the cell. And the T-cell um, touches that molecule and that molecule basically tells the T-cell to disengage. Back and, off. Yes, and and that interaction is the program cell death one and program cell death one ligand, PD-1, PD-L1 interaction. Mm. And these monoclonal antibodies, they target the, that interaction and prevent it from happening. So they block a leave me alone signal, which means they don't leave you alone no more. Or as they colloquially say, they unleash the immune system on the tumor, unleashing it. Um, ah. I, I always, I always like that colorful metaphor of unleashing the, the bulldog that's been leashed. Unleash the T-cell. Unleash now, the T-cell, yeah. On my mark, unleash T-cell, hell. Unleash it. And yeah. of course, that explains the side effects, which is usually autoimmune problems are can be exacerbated. Ah. Um, and and uh-huh. what we call the immune-related adverse events. Um, uh. Anyway, the T cell. So that's. So that, I mean, t- t- to be honest with you, uh, that's that's the extent of my understanding of how it works. <laughs> that's all. Hey, man, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. Because yeah, you would think you know, does it modulate immune systems that you can get these autoimmune things? That would be the first thought. And like yeah. you said, that may be yeah. one of the things. That's great. This see this stuff. This is where like I think um, you know you, you really see the rubber hit the road when it comes to bench science clinical trials, actual outcomes for patients and relieving suffering. Cause like you said, chemo, radiation, then surgery, possible colostomy, it's brutal. Boo. Boo. It's brutal. I have I've I've extended family that have been through this or going through this and uh it's just it's not good. It's not a fun process at all. Um but yeah. That's great, man. Look at that. See, we just we just reduced the clicks on our video by like an order of magnitude by talking no, we, about this No, we stuff. talked about that for the clicks, Zubin, for the clicks. <laughs> according, <laughs> according to your critics, yes. That's exactly what we did. T-cell <laughs> inhibitor is like the only reason... The only reason you broke down this underpowered phase two randomized trial and talked about the non-inferiority margin is that you wanted those clicks. You wanted those clicks. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Every, every day people go on late at night on, on social media. They say, Which, who's talking about non-inferiority margins? <laughs> who's got that hot stuff? Yeah. <laughs> you, you you have such horrible audience capture, Vinay, that you're, <laughs> you're captured by three people. 
<laughs> who, are, who are so into this. They're like, oh man, I got to do it for these this triumvirate of people. I'm doing it for the clicks, but three clicks. Exactly three clicks. Man, that's awesome. You know, I got this, a lot of emails from like the doctors and like one of them was like... Um, you know, they, they like to, you know, I don't know, they like push back on stuff. They're like, in one of the videos, I was like, um, there's this type of breast cancer, triple negative breast cancer. It does not have hormone receptor positivity. And yet 37% of people in that arm received hormone receptor therapy. I pointed what? that out. Yeah. And I was like, hmm, me thinks it smells fishy. I was like, something going on here, something going on here. And then I got back. It's like, oh, but Dr. Prasad, as you well know, and I got many emails, as you well know, hormone receptor positivity can sometimes be lost. And then I said, well, yes, I do know that. But that does happen, but it don't happen 37% of the time, now does it? And then nobody replied back to those emails. I sent it to like five people. Oh, but I'm like, yeah, that's, that's you know, when you talk about that, that's why that's how you get the clicks. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Hey, oh, last wait, thing. Wait, I, wait, oh, I yeah, thing ahead, okay, what yeah. I wanted to say about this point is that I think one of the reason why some people are unhappy with it is that, you know, before I made my show about cancer medicine, there was literally no show about cancer medicine. And for all the limits of my show about cancer medicine, it is really the most popular cancer medicine show by a lot. Because yeah. they're, you know, and I think that that's what irks them. It's not that some rando is critical. It's not that some random professor is critical of them. It's, it's that, that the... That well, yeah. it's, that, it's that that criticism is just getting a lot of people listening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's true. You, your, your thing is actually remarkably popular. I, I told you that when we first met for the space that you're in. It's kind right. of, you're the gold standard of that. We're so people get standard. understandably agitated if they disagree. And I've had people disagree, like, you know, the the, the Rita uh, Redberg uh, show we did, we were talking about mammogram screening. I had a couple of oh, yeah. um, very mm -hmm. passionate mm -hmm. uh, messages with lots of data. Mm -hmm. At some point we will go through and... Um, look at with Rita, uh, but so it, beco it becomes a thing. But one person did message me and asked me specifically to ask you this, and it was an oncologist uh -oh. who's also a palliative care uh -oh. uh, doc and said, you know, ABIM and oncology are working to do a joint training board certification in oncology and end-of-life palliative care. And he was curious what you thought about that. If you were double trained in both, how would that change your practice or would it create conflicts? Would it create opportunities? Uh, and he wanted to toss that to you. Well, I guess, and this is, you didn't tell me the question beforehand. You sprung no. it on me. No, maybe we well, do it in no, a no, different no, no, show. No, 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 no. You gotta, you, this is the price you pay when you come on the hot <laughs> mic, you know? But here's, here's what I would honestly say. And, um, I would honestly say that uh, I have tremendous respect for people who do palliative care, and I think they're super important. Um, and I have tremendous respect for people who do oncology. And I have always felt that part of what it means to be an oncologist is that you should be trained, you should think about those topics, and you should be good at those topics. So much so that I feel like um, there would be no need to have this pathway. Like we should be so committed uh, to these topics that there, yeah. there, there ought not be no need. And I'll just tell you uh -huh. one little story. I once worked with this guy. Um, he was, I think, maybe 35 years older than me, and he had been doing it a long time. And I had the privilege of shadowing him for a long period of time. And, you know, whenever I found people that I really clicked or I felt like that they had something to teach me, I just like sidled up to them all the time. And I, f I learned a few things from this person. So once I walked in on this person and this person was at his desk and I, I, I walked around the desk to say hello. And, um, um, you know, he was crying 
And I said, I'm so sorry to interrupt you. And he said, oh, no, no worries. It's just um, a patient of mine who had been taken care of for seven years just passed away. Mm. And it stuck with me because later I would think about like how many patients this doctor must have taken care of. And the answer is probably 10 or 20,000 people who've passed away. And yet after 30 years of doing it, he still he still is able to feel, you know, that. Mm. Um, so that I think that's an important lesson that you, you know, you should always, you should always be able to feel that. And like, and I think it's, like, and then the next thing, I shadowed him a couple times when he had to tell somebody the hardest thing. And I think the hardest thing in oncology is to tell is to is to tell somebody the moment where there is no treatment that I think can even extend your life or improve your quality of life. And thus, I really recommend, you know, that you sort of think about going in a hospice direction kind of conversation. Right. Um, even the first few meetings, I think, are always tough to break the news. But that meeting is especially tough because that's really when people start to, I mean, when it really becomes just crystal clear. And this doctor did it in a way... It was, it was everything about the way he did it from, you know, the way he entered the room, the way he talked to the family, the way he talked to the patient, the way he brought up the topic, the way he approached the topic and how his body language, the, how he spoke, everything about it was, I thought just as, as good as it could ever be done, you know, the way the best palliative care doctor or the best oncologist would do it. This person had no palliative care training. And at the end of this, the, the person's family there, they were obviously totally tearful and the person was a little bit tearful. And then the patient said to the doctor, you know, I just want to thank you. It couldn't have been easy for you to come in and tell me that news. Wow. It, was, it must have been hard for you. So I really appreciate that. And I appreciate all the care you've given me all these years. And I came out in the hallway and, you know, we let a few minutes go by. And I told the doctor that it was really impressive to me how he did it. And I was like, I've never seen a patient thank the doctor for delivering that kind of bad news. Um, and then he said, oh, huh. He said, huh, I never thought of that. And then he was like, well, you know, I, he said, I can't say that I'm good at it. I just say that I try to be better at it each year. And uh, I was like, and he's been doing it for 37 years. You know, he's been doing it for 37 wow. years. And I was like, that's why he's so good because he's always trying to be better next year. He's never taken it for granted. And anyway, I tell that story just to say, I, you know, I think that that's what we should all aspire in oncology, whether or not you do a palliative care extra training. The training, training is a certificate. It's not this, like, you know, you could do all that training and probably not have it or vice versa, but you should all, everyone who does the field should aspire for that. Ah, that's beautiful, man. And, and you know, it goes against the, the caricature of oncologists, which can sometimes be true, right? Which is why do they put nails in coffins, right? To keep the oncologist from giving chemotherapy to the deceased. You know, it's, it's a, it is a common stereotype that oncologists will flog somebody. It's almost like a failure if they don't. And well, and like a lot of, like a lot of things, yeah. there's a kernel of truth to that. So that's the yeah. problem, right? Which is that yeah. there are a lot of people who give treatment that, yeah, their colleagues would disagree. And, and a, when fin and, and when financial conflict is there, then it, then it's a problem and which you talk problem. about a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Problem, yeah. Now I think we did. All a right. Thing, we man. Did a yeah. Thing. Damn dude. We just kind of, we did a thing at the end. Um, it's awesome. Uh, boy, what should we tell people? I mean, the usual, subscribe to the show. Uh, hey, you know what? L l let me know, do you guys like to see these in video form too uh, or oh, just yes, the audio form? Question. Because that's a good question because it's always a different dynamic if we go the Zoom video route um, or even just taking the audio and putting it on YouTube with sub captions so that people can read along. Uh, let me know, hello at zdogmd.com. Yeah, and how can they- that. And then yeah. for me, I'm telling people, go follow me on Substack 
and uh, and uh, check out the YouTube yeah. videos. There's two. There's the clickbait ones. Those are the oncology trials, and they're the other ones. <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. And uh, we have the usual links in our show notes and descriptions. Thanks again, VP. It's always a joy. Until next time, uh, we love you and we are out. We're out.